0: copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me again to the book of Matthew. We won't be spending too much time in Matthew 19, although that's really the focal point of our study for quite a few uh, weeks here now. But I'm coming to the end of the last little mini-series within our study of Matthew and particularly Matthew 19, which talks about marriage. And uh, we're going to look at the conclusion of this little mini series on marriage and d- divorce. Uh, this is somewhat of a summary of the things we've already touched on, but we also want to talk about some things we have not been able to say as well. And I appreciate you listening attentively. Uh, over these past few weeks of what to, what the Bible has to say about this subject. I trust it's been helpful and as we conclude, I trust it will continue to be helpful in our thinking and our experiences in the days ahead. Now, we've made quite a bit about uh, uh, much about the fact that God says in His Word that He hates divorce. And because God hates it, I hate it. But uh, God does not hate those who are divorced. God does not hate uh, people who sin. The Bible very clearly tells us, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we know that God loves all of us, no matter what sin we've committed in our lives, no matter what kind of situation that we've been in, God loves us. And yet God has some things that He's very clearly taught us in His Word. And as I sang just moments ago, we need to listen to the Word of God. We need to see what it has to say for our lives. It can bring the unsaved to Christ. It can bring the saved to a a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Word of God is very, very important And that's what we're basing these messages upon, the Word of God. These aren't just my opinion. These are not just some things that uh, some man thought up. This is what God's Word says, and we're going to look at that again today. And I want to speak of three particular areas today. What about marriage after divorce? What about the attitude of the church to those who are already divorced? And what can you do now? So our message this morning is entitled, What Next? And uh, if you have missed the previous messages, they are available online on our website. Uh, the website is there in the bulletin, and you can go back and you can look at them. I'm also going to have available a one- to two-page summary of each of these messages that you can uh, you can have uh as well, here in the coming weeks, uh, I'll have them in the back there. And if you want a copy of them, they basically have the outline and some of the a summary of all these points. I know a number of people have been interested in in uh, in those kind of things. So uh, I don't do this for all my messages, but I have done that for this series. So this morning, let's look first of all at remarriage after divorce. And I want to first of all give you four reasons why we should never consider advising people to remarry after divorce. Now, as a pastor, I would never give advice. Uh, Sometimes pastors uh, are asked to give advice to people, and so I would never advise someone to get a divorce in the first place. And we've talked about that. And I would never advise you to remarry after divorce. And I want to give you four reasons why we would say that. First of all, we must carefully examine the Scripture. We've already made that point this morning, how important it is, the Word of God, in our understanding of what God expects of us. We must carefully, and I would emphasize that carefully, examine, I'd I'd also emphasize the word examine, and I'd emphasize the the scripture. All all three of those words are very, very important. You know, people sometimes say, well, you know what the Bible says here, you can can get a divorce because God gave uh, Israel a divorce. Well, you better look at the word very carefully as to what he was saying there. You need to look at the context of what God teaches us, to whom he is teaching it, And uh, we need to be very careful. The thing that goes through most people's minds when talking about this subject of divorce is, of course, the area, uh, area of remarriage. Is there ever a situation when a person can get married after a divorce? Remarriage is probably the most difficult subject to deal with as we deal with this particular area. It's an area in which we must be extremely cautious. And you might remember a few weeks ago I said that in those areas in which we might give advice, there's, a, there's little to protect us from beginning to act upon our own advice. And I personally take strong, uh, uh, a strong no-divorce, no-remarriage, if-divorce-happens uh, uh, position. And I'll explain why I do that a very strong position. It's not, it's not just a, uh, I'm not giving you a wishy-washy, well, maybe you can or maybe you won't. I take a very strong position on this area because I believe that's what the Bible teaches us. Many people come up with all kinds of situations where they think, well, it'll be all right to get a divorce and to get remarried. But I believe that if I give that counsel to someone that it's all right to remarry after divorce, that I'm going to go contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he says. In Matthew chapter 9, or Mark chapter 10, which is a companion parallel passage to our passage here in Matthew 19, uh, you have the standard answer that people give when trying to correlate, remember the, the exception clause or the exception passages that you find in Matthew. In Matthew Uh, chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 5, you have uh, what are called the exception clauses where Jesus made the statement uh, that uh, whosoever shall put away or divorce his wife, except it be for fornication. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, I think it says, save for fornication. And people then try to correlate what Mark says and then what Luke says and you remember that in Mark, it doesn't say anything about a, an exception, nor does it say anything about an exception in Luke. But where the exception is mentioned, then people want to say, well, then remarriage is acceptable. Well, that's an assumption. There's really not one verse in all of the Word of God that ever commands a person to get remarried after divorce. It's simply an assumption that many have made, that if God made this exception, well then, remarriage is okay. Now, Mark chapter 10 is a very key passage in understanding that exception clause, even though the exception is not there. Mark is the exact same scene, the exact same crowd, the exact same incident that gave us the exception clause in Matthew chapter 19. The same people. It's just Mark's account of the same thing that took place there. And if you study this out, I would ask you again to compare these same points in Mark or Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. Both chapters have the same geographical setting. <coughs> both chapters have the same audience. In both passages, it seems like the same question is being asked. Remember... And by the way, both passages make it clear that the Pharisees were trying to trick or to trip up the Lord Jesus in asking their question. They asked Him, tempting Him, the Bible tells us. They were purposely trying to embarrass the Lord Jesus Christ. Both passages seem to have the same question. Both passages, the same Old Testament quotation is given by the Lord Jesus Christ. In both passages, there's the same reply by the Pharisees. In both passages, following the reply by the Pharisees, there's a rebuke by the Lord Jesus. And in both passages, there's a subsequent event that takes place. Now, it is the event where Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So the same event takes place following the record of the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now I would find it highly improbable that Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10 are recording two separate occurrences. It just, there is no evidence for that. I think there's more ample evidence that both of these chapters are recording the same event, the same account. And the difference is that Matthew is writing to who? He's writing to the Jews. That's important to know who an author is writing to. He's writing to the Jews. Now, can we still understand some things for us today, even though we're not Jews, from Matthew? Certainly can. But Matthew was writing to the Jews, and so what he's saying is going to have that flavor to it. Mark is writing to the Greeks and the Romans. And some interesting things come out of that. In Matthew chapter 19, there's not a word about the status of a wife that gets a divorce. But in Mark chapter 10, it very clearly references the wife if she gets a a divorce. Now that's understandable, because in the Jewish culture, there was no consideration given to a wife who got a divorce. None whatsoever But in the Greek or the Roman culture, the woman had a higher standing or understanding of their status. So it was understandable that Mark wrote to the Greeks and the Romans that they also take into account a wife who was divorced. Now what is significant is that these two passages, and I would encourage you to take some time on your own to go and examine Matthew chapter 19 with Matthew chapter 5 and then go to Mark chapter 10 and study these for yourself. But what's very significant is that these two passages are talking about the same incident and the record of Mark 10 goes, Jesus goes on to say, if a man gets a divorce and then gets remarried, remarried, he's committing adultery. If a wife gets a divorce and gets remarried, She is committing adultery and because of that, I cannot find it within my heart to ever counsel someone to get divorced and that then it is all right to get remarried after they get a divorce. And so my policy as a pastor is never to counsel anyone, first of all, to get a divorce. Never to counsel anyone to get remarried. And I would... By the way, never perform a wedding for someone who has been divorced. Now, one might think that's an awful high standard, but you know what that standard is based upon? The Word of God, the Scripture. And is that not what we're to live by? The Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. The Scripture view. The Scripture's view of the sanctity of marriage union and the emphasis of God's Word, which is placed upon it, is very, very important. Now, I know we went through the Matthew passage earlier and I wanted to just remind ourselves of the faulty thinking that often accompanies the use of this passage and help you in rightly dividing the Word of Truth, as Paul encouraged Timothy to do. You see, you just can't take a passage of Scripture or a portion of a verse and then build an entire doctrine or way of thinking around that one verse or one passage. You must consider the rules of interpretation and properly understand what God's Word is saying to us. Now, let me give you some other reasons. Besides, we must carefully examine the Scriptures. We must carefully examine the Scriptures. Secondly, We must avoid being drawn into the innocent party discussion. Avoid being drawn into the innocent party discussion. Oh, but you know, one person, they didn't do anything. It's all the other person's fault. That's a trap. That's a trap. And we all probably know of a situation where it looked like one of the parties was completely wrong and the other party was totally innocent of any wrongdoing. But you know, over time, things come out and we find more about, out more about the people involved and some of the thinking that's the so-called innocent party. We find they weren't so innocent after all. I've said this before and I believe it's true that it just takes, it takes two to make a marriage and then there's a divorce. There is to be fault to be had on the part of both the husband and the wife. Now that may seem a bit radical, but I don't believe there's anything such thing as an innocent party. We've all heard of situations where there's a battered wife or an abandonment. There's been an infidelity. And I will tell you that just as two people must work to succeed And when that marriage fails, there's always some blame to a greater or lesser degree to be laid at the feet of both parties in that marriage. Someone gave some very helpful advice for pastors, and it was good advice for people who are not pastors as well. It went like this. Don't ever set yourself up as a judge determining who is innocent and who is guilty because you just don't know. I don't know what's going on in your heart this morning. Only you and God does. I can't know what's going on in your heart. I think that's good advice. There are times when someone will tell you a story that will break your heart, but down the road you may very well hear some things that will give you a completely different light upon that story. So avoid being drawn into the innocent party discussion. Then thirdly, avoid contradicting the Word of God. Avoid contradicting the Word of God. To advise someone to get married after they've been divorced would violate God's clear prohibition found in Matthew 5, Mark 10, Luke 16, and elsewhere in the Word of God. Uh, Those really, Mark 5, um, or Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16, those are the key passages that need to be studied and, and compared, comparing Scripture with Scripture. God never contradicts Himself. Now, you say, well, there were some divorces among the Jews that were recorded in Deuteronomy and Ezra and Nehemiah. There's never a time when Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul advocated divorce and remarriage. Back in Ezra and Nehemiah, some of those Old Testament passages, we find the remnant returning to occupy the promised land and the necessity of forsaking mixed marriages into which they had entered. And it's important to remember that they uh, are are not the remnant. Sometimes some preachers and people talk as if uh, it is given that today we are the remnant, and therefore certain things regarding the remnant in the Old Testament are applicable to us. And that's a very, very careless treatment of the Word of God. We are not the remnant. Most of us are not Jews here this morning. And so to take things that apply to the remnant and to apply them to ourselves is a very careless treatment of the Word of God. The Matthew 19 passages must be viewed through the same narrow lens as those occurrences where Jewish nation divorces did occur. Yes, there are some times when it's recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah where the leadership of the people of Israel advised people to get divorced. But I also think it's safe to assume that some people, some of those people who got divorces, got remarried. But to take the national incident and to make it apply, uh, apply to us, I believe, again, is careless in the face of Jesus Christ's clear condemnation of remarriage after divorce. There are even some who would use the mention of divorce in the book of Jeremiah as an excuse to encourage divorce. In that passage, God said He would divorce Israel because of their sin. God uses an analogy of divorce to describe His ultimate judgment on the nation of Israel. And some seeking to advocate divorce have misused this passage uh, as permission then to grant divorce. God was not talking about the institution of marriage. He was talking about the nation of Israel. Let me give you four reasons why this passage is not to be used in defense of divorce today. Number one, God's action does not give us automatic license to do the same. For example, God can bring about vengeance, but he warns us not to try it. He says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So God's actions don't always just say, well, you can do it too, just because God did it. You're not God. I'm not God. God does some things that we're not to do. Also, God's dealing with Israel is not designed to cut her off permanently. God's design was to bring her to repentance and restore her to herself. According to God's promise, Israel would one day return to Him. And so... It's a different situation when God's dealing with Israel. He's not dealing with the institution of marriage. And then thirdly, to justify divorce would be to justify bigamy. Just because God gave Israel a bill of divorcement would make it possible for us to justify having more than one wife. Because God used the analogy of being married to both Israel and Judah. And if God uses that analogy of being married to both Israel and Judah, that would, wouldn't that mean we could have more than one wife? That's not consistent with the teaching of God's Word. And then fourthly, the Jeremiah passage is not teaching the kind of divorce being practiced today. Specifically in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8, God administers judgment to a backsliding Israel by putting her away and giving her a bill of divorcement. And yet there is no mention of God giving a divorce to Judah. He gives a divorce to Israel, but He does not give a divorce to treacherous Judah. In verse 14 of Jeremiah chapter 3, God concludes that He is still married to them. He says, oh, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. Again, you see the danger of not rightly dividing the word of truth. And to take this one passage and make a defense for divorce is completely off track. And yet time and time and time again, we hear the argument made. In fact, I have over in my library, in my office, two volumes on marriage by a divorced pastor who justifies his divorce and remarriage, beginning with the argument, well, God was divorced, so it's okay if I get divorced. That's very careless handling of God's Word. We dare not do that. And then we go back to our reasons why divorce is not advisable. And the fourth one is, there is an incredible danger in rationalizing divorce. You might remember what I said in an early, earlier message about being careful about what we advise because eventually we'll it might be something that we would participate in. Now that may not seem fair to you, but I've seen it happen many times in the lives of others. I think it's far better to take a high road in this matter than to carelessly fall into the trap of determining or undermining, excuse me, undermining the sanctity of the home. And so in the area of remarriage after divorce, we must carefully examine the scriptures. We must avoid being drawn into the innocent party discussion. We must avoid contradicting the scriptures, and there is danger in rationalizing divorce. Now the second thing I wanted to talk to you about this morning was the attitude of of the church to those who are divorced. Now I know that in our church we have a number of people, there may be a number of people here this morning that are divorced, and perhaps for you it's been kind of difficult to listen to these messages on marriage and divorce. And as I've said before, God hates it, but God does not hate you. God hates divorce, but He does not hate divorcees. God loves you, and I certainly have a great appreciation for our folks who've gone through this experience in their lives, and I know it wasn't easy. And no doubt it was a time when there was much soul-searching and heartbreak I also trust these messages have been helpful to you in understanding of marriage and divorce. Now, I know I've taken a hard line again on this issue. But if you're remarried after divorce, no one, not even God, expects you to dissolve your present marriage and reconcile with your first spouse. We're not saying that. Now, in churches, even Bible-believing churches, there's no doubt a wide variety of attitudes toward those who have been divorced. In some churches, divorced people are treated as if they have leprosy. They can't do anything. A divorced lady cannot serve in the nursery. She could not serve in the kitchen, nor could she do anything else. A divorced man could not be an usher or anything else in in the church. There are some that have a very rigid view and then there are those on the other extreme where divorce and remarriage takes place and nobody thinks anything about it. And they go on and serve in any capacity in the church. So what should be our attitude? And I hopefully this is our attitude for those who are divorced. What should be our attitude to those who are divorced and in the church? Well, first of all, these folks need our love. They need love. Just as anyone else needs love, those who are divorced need our love as well. They need our forgiveness. And when they are a part of our church and a divorce occurs, they will need our fellowship. It's very unchristlike to treat them like they have leprosy, it's very unchristlike to almost make them wear the scarlet letter D and go around branded because they've gone through the heartache and the heartbreak of divorce. We must minister to everyone that God brings to us and we must minister them and un- and love them and understand that they need that love. I hope that's the attitude of everyone in this church. They need our love. Secondly, divorce like any other sin can be forgiven. Divorce, like any other sin, can be forgiven. Forgiveness in the area of divorce does not necessitate another divorce to make things right. And Let's say there's someone you know that's gotten a divorce and then remarried. And just because of those things that we've said about divorce, I don't want you to get the idea that you need to dissolve that second marriage. You don't keep on doing what's wrong to correct a situation. I believe that a person who has gotten a divorce and remarried needs to come to the understanding of what God's Word says, confess sin before God, and God will forgive them, and then we treat them as a forgiven person. And if you've never dealt with sin, then you need to do so. That goes for anybody in here. If there's sin in your life, you need to deal with it need to get it right before God, and if there's others that need to be gotten right with, you need to get right with them. But divorce, like any other sin, can be forgiven. God is a forgiving God, and we ought to be forgiving people. And then, thirdly, it's untrue that a church that limits what a divorced person can do is unforgiving. It's untrue, it's false that a church that limits what a divorced person can do is unforgiving. Now I've heard this statement and no doubt you've heard it too. Someone might have said, you know, I can be a murderer and I can still be a deacon. But I can't be divorced and be a deacon. I had a man in one of my churches that I pastored who made a very similar statement. And by the way, he spent time in prison for killing a man in a drunken brawl, uh, brawl in a bar room. But he got saved. Praise God, he got saved. And, and I baptized him, and he wanted to serve the Lord, but it bothered him. He could not be a deacon in the church. Why could he not be a deacon? Because he had murdered someone? No. Because he had been divorced. He thought he couldn't do anything. And that wasn't true. Now he's with the Lord. And And yet he had a problem in this area when he was in our church. But in regard to that statement, it's a very misleading statement. I do not know one Bible-believing church, and I've heard the testimony of, uh, of an evangelist who preached in some 1,500 churches where there was not one deacon who was a former murderer. And so really that's a straw man to a proposition to say, well, I can be a murderer and serve in the church but since I'm divorced, they won't let me do anything. You see, that's an unforgiving church. I've also heard Christians say, well, the world is more forgiving than Christians are. That's not true. You know what the world does? It condones sin, but the world does not forgive sin. You don't have to watch very many of those Daytime talk sh- TV talk shows that feature all the vilest topics and the parade of freaks and weirdos to know that the world condones sin. And the purpose of those programs is to desensitize us to sin and we're supposed to say it's okay. But the attitude is that the world accepts it. So what's wrong with the church? Oh, the church doesn't, uh, doesn't accept it, so they're unforgiving. No, no. The simple fact is the big difference between forgiveness and someone being placed back into a position where they, were prior, uh, where they were prior to the sin. So be careful about making these little statements that may sound good, but they're not accurate. These statements betray the reactionary attitude of someone who's unwilling to accept the multiple areas where a divorced person can serve in a local church. Now, this is my advice to that kind of a person. Rather than getting hung up on what you cannot do, will you just stop and look at the many, many, many things you can do? There are many areas in which a person that's been divorced and even remarried, and they've gotten right with the Lord, and they may have some other scar or they may have scars and stains in their past, but they've dealt with their sin. And there are many ways, many ways in which they can serve. Now, there are some things we cannot do. Churches will differ on these, but some churches may say, well, no divorced person can hold an office or be employed by the church or be the main teacher of the Sunday school class. We do not have that standard here. That's one of the things about being an independent, autonomous church. We're going to what we understand the Bible to say. And I do, do believe, that biblically, there are two main areas in which a divorced person cannot serve according to God's Word. And that's the two offices of pastor and deacon. That's what God's Word teaches us. As we look at the qualifications of a pastor and a deacon in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Now, some churches, and even some Baptist churches, would not interpret the Scriptures that way. I believe they're wrong. And just as wrong as teachers who allow women to hold offices, some of those offices as well, like a pastor and a deacon. Uh, That's not what God's Word teaches us. You can twist God's Word to make it say that, but that's not what it says. Interpretation of God's Word is never to be a matter of convenience or popular demand. And here again, it's of utmost importance that we rightly divide the word of truth. And so a divorced person, according to God's word, should not be a deacon or a pastor. But there are many places to serve the Lord. There's much work to be done in getting the gospel out and providing a place where the gospel is proclaimed and taught. There are many areas of service, and I believe if someone truly wants to humbly serve the Lord, they will find their area of service. And so again, don't get hung up on what you can't do, but have grace to know that there are things you can do and you can honor and serve the Lord. And then it's important to reach out to the divorce and understand the continual hurt that they may experience. As I've said before, we need to realize that a divorced person doesn't have leprosy. We need to reach out to them. We need to love them. We need to make sure that we display a Christ-like attitude toward them. Now, I know that we're getting late here, but I'll go quickly through the seven things you can know. I want to list for you seven things you can do, and really these things are for those who are not married and those who are married. I think that just about covers everybody, doesn't it? Someone might say, well, Pastor, you've been pounding away on this matter of divorce for five messages. Now, I'm not even married yet. Is it really that important for me? Someone else might say, well, Pastor, I'm already married. What does God want me to do that I've not already done and not already doing? Well, I believe there are seven things in closing here I want to challenge you with to do next. Whether you're married or unmarried. If you want God's will for your life in this area of marriage, there are things that are important to consider. First of all, determine divorce will never be an option. Whether you're married or you hope to be married someday, you need to determine in your heart that divorce will never be a solution to any problem in your marriage. A young person that is not married can do that even today. You can determine when the time comes that you'll never consider divorce as an option. Marriage is for keeps. What do the vows say? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. That is a promise. That is a vow. That's a vow my wife and I took over 43 years ago. It's a vow that I believe we are to honor in our lives. Determine that divorce will never be an option. Develop single-mindedness. Again, we're looking at things from two perspectives here. Married and unmarried. Single-mindedness does not begin the moment you say, I do. There's something you must de- develop before you're, you marry and something you must continue to cultivate in your marriage. You need to be praying that God will help you be faithful to the one that you're going to marry or... When you are married, that you'll continue to be faithful to God as God has brought you and your life's parted together. Single-mindedness will honor the Lord, protect a marriage relationship. Exercise respect and reconciliation. Whether you're dating or already married, how do you handle problems? You pout and say to yourself, well, I'm I'm not going to say anything until they admit they're wrong. You know, in every relationship, there has to be a peacemaker. It's not demeaning to be the one who says, oh, come on, I'm sorry, let's get this thing right. It's not good for us to be mad at each other. Let's get it settled. Exercise respect and reconciliation. Fourthly, study what the word, God's Word says about love and marriage. Study what God's Word says. Find it in the Scriptures. Don't find it in the world. The world will give you all kinds of counsel and advice that's bad. God's Word will give you the right counsel. Study it out. Fifthly, observe successful marriages around you. I'm thankful we have couples here that are demonstrating quality marriages right here in our church. Even those who have been divorced already and remarried and they're still... They're demonstrating quality marriage. I believe we have people here that believe at this point, uh, at this point marriage is for life and God is going to bless them and as they're faithful to the word and to one another. And then, sixthly, develop friendships that are built on unconditional love. This is so important for having a successful marriage. I'm not going to ask you to change something so that I can love you. I just love you. It's a great way to live. It's the way that God chooses to love us unconditional, agape love. And then, love for what is on the inside rather than what is on the outside. You know, people come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? All different kinds of personalities. And as regard to outward appearance, some have hair and some don't. Some are tall and some are short. Some are fat and some are skinny. Some are attractive and some are just downright homely. But I'm convinced that you look back on someone that you've hardly noticed in life and you'll discover that they were quality people. And oftentimes we're so shallow in our relationships, we are so brainwashed by the world's emphasis on the physical and looking just perfect, that we often cheat ourselves out of getting to know someone who is a very wonderful person. They might not look much on the outside, but they are wonderful inside. And there's something about them, that, something that Christ is evident in their life and that causes us to love and appreciate them and respect them. And the reason why plastic surgeons have A great job security is because there's always going to be someone who's dissatisfied with the way they look. And it's sad that people think they have to change their physical appearance to be accepted. And it's equally sad when that way is the way they treat others. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe we need to take care of the bodies that God has given us. This body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we need to be concerned with our health by eating right, getting exercise, and so forth. But we never, that's never to be the most important thing in our life. Learn to love people for what they are on the inside rather than on the outside. We need to be people who are dissatisfied about what's going on on the inside. We need to be people who feed on the word of God to exercise ourselves unto godliness. And I trust that the series of messages that I've given to you the last five weeks has been a help to you. will help you understand God's design for your marriage or for your future marriage. And I trust we'll continue to rightly divide the Word of God in order to be right with God in our lives and our relationship to others. May God help us to have godly marriages. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for